Now hear the word of the Lord from Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. Please be seated. Peace be with you. We exist to reach people with the gospel, build them up as God's church, and then send them wherever God leads to be champions of truth, beauty, and goodness. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, there's probably something about this sense of mission or purpose that resonates a little bit the first week of January when we're, we're naturally thinking about goals, goal setting, resolutions. Maybe this is the year that people finally see you as the responsible one or the fun one or the witty one, the smart one, the strong one, whatever you imagine a desirable person to be. We are an image conscious people. We want to convince others, and most of all, ourselves, of our worth. Where does this drive to make ourselves look good come from? And why does it often seem to make us more miserable, especially when we're comparing ourselves to others? Why are we so image conscious? Our lives have been marked by a very real failure, a failure of ours, a failure of all of our ancestors from the dawn of time. And this failure is not just that we do various bad things or forget to say our prayers at night. So what is it? How do we fix it? What does it have to do with being image conscious? We're about to take a sweeping tour of the Bible, this book that was written by many different people over thousands of years. And you might think, what do these old stories have to do with me? What does this have to do with being image conscious? I give it 20 minutes, and you may see a connection and a way forward that you haven't quite noticed before or thought about in this way, and it might be helpful to you. So we begin at our beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. In the ancient Near East, anyone hearing a story about a God building something in six days or six stages would have thought, this sounds like stories about temples, homes for the gods. The original readers and hearers of Genesis would have noticed by the language that's used, would have noticed the connection between this creation story and temple stories. In this story, all the earth is the temple of the Israelite God, and the Garden of Eden is his inner sanctum. When ancient people built temples, the last thing they did, the sixth stage or the sixth day, was they placed an image to the God inside the temple. As the Israelite tribes first heard the Genesis story, after newly being freed from slavery, and they're camping out on their wilderness journey, 
light bulbs in their head would have went off when Moses said, so God created human beings in his image. Their God made his own image, but not an idol of silver or wood or gold. The human beings themselves were created in the image of God, and he placed them in his temple. When anyone or anything in all of creation, including another person, looked upon a human being, they were supposed to see a representation of what God is like and what God does. Another way to say this is that humans were created to be priests. Adam and Eve were created as priests in the garden, representing God as stewards over his creation and representing all of creation in their praise back to God. As Jenny Riddle writes in Revelation Song, which we'll sing later this morning, with all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. And then an even more famous song, Psalm 8 picks up the aspect of stewardship over creation when it says in verse 4, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them, yet you made them only a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Remember this word glory. We'll come back to it later. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. God intended us to govern this earth according to his values. This would mean a world of harmony, peace, love, humility, where everyone and everything flourishes. There's no poverty. There's no oppression. There are no unimportant people. A world where every human being is as much of a priest and an image bearer as the next. The biblical concept of sin, then, is not just that we do various bad things and need to be punished. N.T. Wright says, called to responsibility and authority within and over creation, humans have turned their vocation upside down, giving worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation itself. The name for this is idolatry. Long after the creation story, long after the fall of Adam and Eve, and with them the fall of all humanity, God turns to Israel, 12 related desert tribes that he frees from slavery in Egypt. Then in the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19, where God is telling them how to construct a new sacred space, not the Garden of Eden, but the tabernacle, this portable temple that they'll be able to take with them on their wilderness journey. God says in verse 6, and you will be my kingdom of priests my holy nation. This job is not just to be set apart from the world, but eventually to bless the whole world by showing them how to stop being image conscious and their own power and wealth and to start being image bearers of their creator. The rest of the Old Testament shows Israel's own idolatry and their resulting exile as they are conquered by nation after nation. And this is bad news for the whole world. It's as if the firefighters sent to put out the fire have themselves become engulfed in the flames. So quick recap, Adam and Eve had failed as priests and image bearers, but instead of killing them, God sent them into exile outside of Eden. 
Now Israel has failed, but instead of wiping them off the planet, God sends them into exile. Not only did he spare them, but he promised the exile would end one day. A rescuer would come, a rescuer who would lead a new exodus to freedom, just like the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. This is unjustified mercy. If God is just, if he is a good judge, he must justify this mercy. God is not unjust. He cannot just look the other way. And we all know in our hearts this is how it must be. When we hear of a criminal getting away with evil, our hearts cry out for justice. So how does God get humanity back on track to be his image bearers, his priests representing God as stewards over his creation and representing all of creation and their praise back to God? How can he pardon humans while also showing himself to be a righteous judge? He becomes a human himself in the person of Jesus, fully human and fully God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Talk about an image bearer. We are like God, but Christ is the exact representation of his being. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, and he has become fully human. During his sinless life, he proves himself to be the true image, the high priest, and Israel's long-promised saving king. He fulfills their obedience to God's law draws all of their sin upon himself. And he satisfies justice upon his own body. In doing so, Jesus, the faithful Israelite, does for the world what Israel was supposed to do for them. Justice has been served. We have been justified. The exiles can come home to God, and new life is offered to the world. The gospel writers show that Jesus is leading a new exodus, not just from a human oppressor, but from Satan, sin, and death. The apostle Paul draws his analogy back even further than Israel's exile when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In God's true image bearer, Jesus the King, He has rescued us so we could participate in his perfect work of representing God in our stewardship over this world and representing all of creation in our worship back to God. This was the plan all along. Maybe being image conscious isn't so bad. Depending on whose image you're conscious of. But how could we do it successfully after the cross when we failed so miserably before the cross? And for that, we turn to Paul's letter to Christians in Rome, about 23 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, at least five house churches that we know of in Rome, several hundred Christians worshiping Jesus as the risen Savior King. And throughout this letter to Romans, there is a thread of glory 
Remember I said pay attention to that word glory back in Psalm 8, which describes the authority humans have in this world as being crowned with glory and honor. This word, the, the Greek word for glory is doxa. It can also be translated as majesty. It mostly refers to the honor and authority that come with exalted status. The glory narrative in Romans, Paul is recapping the history of the human race in Romans, and he tells this narrative, the glory narrative begins with humanity forsaking the glory of God, meaning we forsook our identity and our job as image bearers. He writes in Romans 1, verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. We neither glorified him by representing him as stewards over his creation, governing like he does, nor gave thanks to him by summing up the praises of all creation and dedicated worship to God. Chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, falling short of the glory. A more literal translation would be lacking the glory. It means more than lacking moral perfection, although that's true as well. Remember Psalm 8 written a thousand years before this letter to the Romans. Psalm 8, which described the, the, the glory as being God crowned us with glory. God crowned us with glory and honor. Romans 3 is saying we lost that crown. Where's your crown? The one that God gave you. Well, you gave it to idols, to sin. Your instincts know something is wrong, which is why you're so image conscious, wanting to make something of yourself, feeling like there's, there surely was something more. You were meant for something more. Well, you were. The narrative of glory in Romans continues with the promise of God's people sharing the glory of God again. Chapter 5, verse 2. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Chapter 8, verse 15. The spirit you received brought about your adoption. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. After Christ suffered, died, and rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven where he was enthroned as king. He sends his spirit to those who give allegiance to him sealing our adoption into God's family and enabling us to embody the values of the kingdom until that kingdom comes in its fullness with the return of Christ. Chapter 8, verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The result of the final, complete glorification of God's children is that all of creation will be renewed and clean. And this is why it says in verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The otters are waiting. The blue jays are waiting. The fields and streams are waiting. As God's Spirit conforms us to the image of the Son, we find more and more that we no longer want to pillage and plunder the earth and its inhabitants. We want to live like Jesus in love, humility, service, so that everyone and everything flourishes. 
And no one needs to grasp for power or be image conscious to make themselves look better than others. Paul's point is that in Christ, the broken image bearers will be made whole again, once more having the honor associated with stewardship, sharing in the glory of God. And now we arrive at the verses which Lindsay read to us at the beginning. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God's plan all along was for us to be conformed to the image of God's Son, justified by him in spite of all that we've done and glorified. And this means more than floating on clouds in a disembodied state, playing harps for all eternity. We share in Christ's inheritance, his reign over the earth as a righteous king. Not like the rulers of this present world, who abuse others and create structures for their own protection, who pillage the planet and are driven to an image-conscious existence. We are rescued by Christ to be a royal priesthood, filled with the Holy Spirit to experience union with Christ and receive the strength we need to take up our cross, a suffering yet joyful witness that causes others to wonder what it is about us that enables us to respond to hard times with trust and gratitude. This means that suffering, everything from head colds and first breakups to our eventual funerals, is part of the Christian life. It means that fierce resistance from evil as we seek to do good is part of it too. Willingly taking up our cross is part of the way in which the Spirit works in us to conform us to the image of His Son, to make us like Him, to cause us to depend on Him, and to experience fulfillment, purpose, and meaning that enables us to survive hard times and cling to hope. And in making us more like Christ, we become less image conscious for ourselves and more like whole images of God toward others. One day suffering will be over and we will reign with Christ. Our task now is is not to rule. I'm going to say this again because Christians often get this wrong. Our task now in the waiting is not to rule, to force people to a Christian ethic. Our task is to point people and to help them long for the coming king. The novelist Madeline Lingle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time and other books, says it like this. We draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. 
and he's doing it through millions of us by the power of the Spirit. So you don't have to make anything happen to become some big deal. You're the only you who goes where you go, who does what you do, who has the specific interactions that you have. And I couldn't think of a better example for us in the here and now than Chuck Hickey, Big Chuck, Mr. Chuck. Week after week, month after month, year after year, standing in that little classroom across this building and teaching the gospel to fourth and fifth graders. In a, in a mid-sized church, in a mid-sized town, in a mid-sized state. Never something he was going to win a Nobel Prize for. Would seem insignificant to, to many. You know, there are still teachers that I had decades ago that poured into me and they helped shape who I am. And I still remember them. And, and Chuck left a legacy in the lives of those kids that will be remembered for a long time. And the same Holy Spirit who is in Chuck, the same Spirit who will raise Chuck, is in countless millions of others across this globe, in the biggest of cities, in the smallest of villages, leading them to simply be faithful in the little things. Our stewardship of creation in the here and now involves embodying the values of the kingdom and pointing to the king. So, my Monday challenge to you is actually a 2022 challenge. Since this is the first Sunday of the year, I'm not giving you a, a little thing that you can do tomorrow. I'm giving you a, a big picture way of framing your mission throughout this year. And here it is. Be image conscious. Because image is everything. Just not your image. His. Write this down or take a snapshot of the screen. Stick this on your bathroom vanity mirror, your car dashboard, your desk at work, your refrigerator. In 2022, resolve to be conscious of God's purpose for you as an individual and for us as a church. And if you focus less on how you look to others and accept who you are in Christ, you may experience fulfillment and purpose in 2022 like never before. Be image conscious because image is everything, just not your image, his. We'll end our time together with a look at the end of all our struggles as the prophet of Revelation sees redeemed image bearers gathered to fulfill their proper function for all eternity because of Christ. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
So we've gone from Genesis to Revelation, and it's the same story. It's, it's not a theological dictionary. Helpful tips, a rule book, disconnected morality plays. It's one story with one purpose for you and me. And the hero is Jesus. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.